This morning we continue in our series, Who is Jesus? And I hope that this story is not reflective of you this morning, but the story was told of a pastor addressing his congregation and letting them know that there would be a church board meeting immediately following the gathering. And so at the close of the gathering, the church board kind of gathered in the back of the worship center for the meeting. And they get back there to meet, and something very strange occurred. One of the first-time guests who had never attended the gathering showed up for the meeting. And the pastor kindly greets him and talks to him and says, you know, we're glad that you're here today, but this meeting is really exclusively for the board. And the visitor says, yes, I'm fully aware of that. And after today's sermon, I suppose I'm just about as bored as anyone who is here today. We hope that you don't feel that way about our series and about this message today because we are talking about exciting truths about Jesus. The last time we were together, we talked about the fact that he is truly our resurrected Savior, our risen Savior. And today we're going to look at the all-important topic that Jesus is God. Without that firmly in place as truth, Christianity would not exist. If you do not believe in the unique deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian, whatever else you may be. We are not looking at a good man only. We are not interested merely in the greatest teacher the world has ever seen. We are face to face with the fact that God, the eternal Son, has been in this world, and that he took upon him human nature and dwelt among us, a man amongst men, the God-man. We are face to face with the mystery and the marvel of the incarnation and of the virgin birth. It's all here, and it shines out in all the fullness of its amazing glory. What manner of man is this? He is more than man. That is the answer. He is also God. That Jesus himself is himself God is the heart of the gospel because apart from his deity, he could not save a single soul. No heresy so corrupts the gospel and robs it of its power as the teaching that Jesus is not God. Apart from his deity, there is no gospel and no salvation. There is no point then in romanticizing other religions that reject the deity and saving work of Christ. They do not know God, and those who follow them tragically waste their lives. Jesus is Lord is the church's earliest confession. It remains the abiding test of authentic Christianity. Neither the church nor the individual believer can afford to compromise Christ's deity. In his sovereignty lies his sufficiency. He will be Lord of everything or not Lord at all. And hopefully this morning you are convinced of his deity. And if you're not and you have questions about Jesus and who he is... We would love that conversation. Please ask your questions. We would not shy away from having that conversation with you. We would love to have it, even if you're a skeptic or even if you're an unbeliever this morning and don't care anything about Jesus. We would still love to talk to you about Jesus 
what the Bible says and what he means to us. It's interesting as we look at surveys that are done, there's one called the state of theology that is done ever so often. And from that, we find that 56% of American adults believe that Jesus was God. And within this group of people that, that were surveyed, we find that millennials are those to be the only group to have less than half who believe that Jesus was God. So the truths that we are talking about today are truths that we need to be fully convinced of. We need to know what we believe regarding Jesus and his deity, and we need to know why we believe it. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. But beyond just being sure of it ourselves and in a position to be able to defend and practice good apologetics about the deity of Jesus, that he is God, we also need to consider the impact and the influence that we may be able to have in the lives of other people regarding this truth. Because there are many who struggle with it, not just in the American culture, but also in the church, as we will note in a minute. 35% of these people also said that Jesus was merely a religious or spiritual leader, and 17% in culture at large weren't sure what or who he was. That's our American culture reflected in this part of the survey. However, within the evangelical church, we're also seeing a problem, a gap, a lack of understanding, perhaps a lack of good teaching and understanding of who Jesus is. 30% of those who would claim to be evangelicals now agree with this statement according to the survey, the state of theology, which was done by Lifeway through Ligonier Ministries. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Now, I want to point out that in this particular segment, those who were evangelicals who were a part of this survey said, in order to be called an evangelical, they said that they agreed with the following four statements. I want you to track with me and see this because we're going to see an interesting inconsistency here that should tell us something and should well inform us of some things. But these people who were evangelicals, even the 30% who agreed with the statement that Jesus was a great teacher but was not God, said that they have believed or strongly agreed with these following statements. Notice this with me. They first of all said, as evangelicals, we believe that the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. Isn't that interesting? Because today, we are going to build the case from Scripture that Jesus truly is God, that he is deity, that he is the Son of Man, but that he is also the Son of the living God. And if the Bible is the highest authority for what you believe, surely you would believe what it says about Jesus. Next of all, they claim that it is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. But as we formally said in the introduction to our message today, that there is no heresy that so corrupts the gospel and robs it of its power as the teaching that Jesus is not God because apart from his deity, there is no gospel and there is no salvation. So these same people who say that they believe the Bible is their highest authority for what they're supposed to believe and that they are to be evangelical in inviting other people to trust Jesus in their own way of thinking, they are inviting someone to trust in a Savior who has no power whatsoever to save them, if he isn't God. 
as they claim. They believe that he's not. It is alarming that people can believe these things but yet miss the point on who Jesus is. They also say that they believe that Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. Yet, if their Savior is true and the identity that they have of Jesus is true, that he is not God, then him dying on the cross would do nothing to remove the penalty of our sins. Because only a perfect individual without sin could be a sacrifice for sinners and pay for sin in the way that Jesus did. If he wasn't God, didn't live a sinless life as part of the Godhead, then his sacrifice would be meaningless. This same group of people said they believe that only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. And I remind you again, there is no salvation from sin and there is no gospel without Jesus being God. So what is the problem here? We have people who claim to be evangelical, who claim to have a personal relationship with Jesus and who love other people enough to invite them to trust in Jesus, yet they themselves, 30% of them, don't believe that Jesus is God, that he's the son of God. It's obviously a lack of understanding and somewhere something is missing. Now, I can't speak for every case, obviously. I can't make universal statements. But there is a lack here somewhere, a lack of teaching perhaps, good teaching, a lack of understanding and application, a lack of taking the scriptures for what they say and believing them. We know that there are figurative parts of the Bible that speak symbolically, but a good rule of thumb whenever you're studying the scripture and one of the basic rules of studying the Bible, that art and science of studying the Bible is called hermeneutics, by the way, if you've heard that term. It it is the process of studying the Bible. And one of the basic principles of that process is that when the literal sense makes common sense, seek no other sense. So that when the Bible speaks, it's speaking with authority. And if, if it's clear from the text that it's talking literally and not symbolically or figuratively, then we are to believe what it says without any additional meaning attached to it. And there are times when the scriptures use symbolic language. But when we examine the texts of scripture that speak about Jesus and his deity, we don't find any cause in those texts whatsoever to take those verses as anything but literal. And that is why we should take it literal, or at least one of the reasons why, as we are careful in our biblical interpretation. So maybe one of the gaps that's being identified with a study like this that reveals such an alarming conclusion is that people have not been taught truly how to study the scriptures and how to build theology out of scripture that's consistent with scripture and then live it out in their life. Maybe that's what it's revealing for us. Regardless of the details, it is obvious and I think very honest to say that there is truly a lack of understanding for whatever reason among God's people who claim to be evangelical about the matters of basic Bible doctrine and theology. And so we are trying to bridge that gap with these messages that are theological in nature. Well, let's dive in about Jesus being God. 
I want to look first of all at biblical evidences. I think it's going to feel a little bit like drinking out of a fire hydrant this morning. I apologize for that. We are going to move quickly. If you have questions, obviously I'm available to speak to you about them. But I want to look quickly at the biblical evidences for the deity of Jesus. And there are several of those in these categories. First of all, Scripture clearly states that Jesus is God. In John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The Word in John 1, as revealed to us in verse 14, is Jesus, because this Word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here is Jesus, the Son from the Father, being identified in verse 14 as the Word. And the Word back in verse 1 the Word was God, foundational to establishing the deity of Jesus, no question at all. Again, no reason to take this passage figuratively and every reason to take it literally. Romans chapter 9 also speaks of the deity uh, of Jesus. We'll, we'll, go, we'll drop down to verse 5. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Messiah, And how is the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ, identified by Paul in Romans 9? Who is God over all, praised forever, amen. Paul comes right out and calls Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God over all. Now, I don't want you to miss something as we skip down to verse 5 in this particular text. Paul firmly believed in the deity of Jesus. He taught that. He defended that. He makes this statement in Romans 9 as well. But that truth so gripped his heart that he was so passionate about other people who didn't yet believe this truth. What does he say back up a couple verses in verse 3? For I could almost wish to be cursed and cut off from Jesus for the benefit of my brothers, my own flesh and blood. Those that Paul wanted to see come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, he was willing to trade his spiritual position in Christ if it meant that they would come to Jesus. So while we increase our understanding and knowledge of theology in this message and the ones to follow, let us be as passionately uh, consumed with the themes as Paul was in translating them into the language of daily living not just increasing our knowledge. You know, names for God are given to Jesus. That's a second biblical evidence for his deity. We come to Isaiah 9, 6, and we see the child, Jesus, will be born from us. This is prophetic words of Jesus. A son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace all names for God and deity ascribed to Jesus. And then, of course, very obviously in Matthew 1, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. The virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him what? Emmanuel. Good teacher with us? No. God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. God with us. Again, very clearly giving a name of deity to Jesus Christ. 
The Bible continues to give us evidences by showing us that the characteristics of deity are also descriptive terms for Jesus. How about his eternality in like a verse like Micah 5, 2? It says there that one will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. Has no beginning, has no end. This is Jesus. Again, the verses we already read in John saying he was with God in the beginning and he was God. He is eternal. We say in that that he was coexistent with the Father. He's also omnipresent. In Matthew 18, we find this statement, for where two or three, Jesus says, are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. How does a finite human being accomplish that? That whenever and wherever two or three people are gathered, he's in the midst of them. If he is not omnipresent, he cannot live up to this statement. It's impossible. Yet Jesus says, this is true. You see, that is a characteristic of deity. And then what about the promise in Matthew 28, when he tells them to go and make disciples? And he says, remember, I am with you always, all of you. I'm going to be with you always, wherever you go, to the end of the age. How is that even possible? Only if he is supernatural, if he is God. What about his power? We say he's omnipotent as well, like a verse in Philippians 3.21 he will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power, speaking of Jesus, that enables him to subject everything to himself. That's omnipotence. And that is stated of Jesus. That is a characteristic of deity. And then what about his knowledge? He truly is omniscient. What about John chapter 2? Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he, does, he did not need anyone to testify about man. Why? For he himself knew what was in man. He knew their thoughts. He knew what they were thinking before they ever spoke it. He knew what they were thinking before the thought ever occurred to them because he is omniscient and he needs no teacher to inform him. He knows everything. We've already studied these characteristics in relationship to the Father in our earlier series on who is God. But here we see them given to Jesus, establishing his equality with the Father and screaming out to us that Jesus is God. We also find that Scripture establishes that Jesus and God are what we call co-equal. We find this in the area of worship, don't we? We see an example of it in John 20, where Thomas responded to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Jesus accepts this worship without any rebuke or correction. Thomas recognizes Jesus in this way, and Jesus receives the worship. You find a difference here and in the text where the apostles faced similar situation, right? They didn't receive worship. They stopped people from worshiping them because they understood and knew that they weren't God and worship was reserved for God. Jesus rightfully accepts it without any rebuke or correction to Thomas because Jesus is God. His name is also used on equal terms with God's, isn't it? Matthew 28 is an example of that. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. 
This establishes an equality of all three, helping us further define what the Godhead truly is. And Jesus is included there. In 2 Corinthians, we find him also in chapter 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. A similar context, of course, as Matthew 28, where all three are mentioned equally and valued equally. We also see that Jesus does things that only God can do, like creation in John chapter 1 and verse 3, speaking of the Word, who is Jesus. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. No one can create out of nothing except they be God. And so here he is with the activity of deity, the actions of deity being ascribed to him. What about this one? The forgiveness of sin. Even those religious leaders in the New Testament understood this concept. Seeing their faith there in Mark 2, Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The answer is no one. But yet Jesus does that. He does the actions of deity. Now certainly these are not exhaustive lists, but these are simply brought together to make a point for us today and hopefully promote further study. What about Jesus' claim? Did he ever claim to be God? Yes, he did. He speaks of him being equal to the Father. John 10, 30, the Father and I are one. And then John 17, in his prayer, he says, I am no longer in the world, but they, speaking of his disciples, are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. That is the theological underpinning in brief form of why we believe that Jesus is God. Not just man, but God and man. Fully God and fully human at the same time. Now I want to talk to you in the few moments that we have remaining about some practical applications of the deity of Jesus. What should all of this mean to us? If we believe it, great. But now what? Well, let's remember these things together. First of all, because Jesus is God, his death on the cross is sufficient to take away our sins. Remember, we said earlier that it is his sovereignty that provides for his sufficiency. And without his sovereignty as being God, there would be no sufficiency. He would have died just like any other Christian martyr died if he wasn't God. His death would not atone for our sins if he wasn't God. I love the passage here in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place or preeminence in everything. 
For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Notice the foundation of who Jesus is is laid very strongly in this passage. It says it clearly, doesn't it? That God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And on that basis and that basis alone can the reconciliation that is mentioned later even become a reality. The foundation of theology was laid here in Paul's writing to proclaim strongly who Jesus is and then reconciliation can take place. But only if he is sufficient in his death and he's only sufficient in his death as he is sovereign over all. He is God and because of that, his death on the cross is sufficient to take away our sins. It also means that because he came and died on the cross as, after living this life in front of humanity, that his life serves as an uncompromised standard and perfect example for all believers to emulate. If he wasn't God, this would not be true. But it is true because he is God. Very quickly, what does he teach us about in his life? Well, he teaches us about humble servant. We won't read all these verses, but in John 13, what's the story? The story is he's washing his disciples' feet. And he says, I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. I'm teaching you how to be a servant through humble servant. I'm going to kneel here and wash your dirty feet to give you an example of humble service and then tell you you ought to serve each other in this way. How about sacrificial suffering? Like 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about that he, uh, for you were called to this, it says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps and be willing to sacrificially suffer if his calling on your life demands that of you. He also is our example of selfless love too, like what we find in Ephesians chapter five, where we are told very clearly that we're supposed to be imitators of God. How can we imitate God? By walking in love as the Messiah, as Jesus also loved us and gave himself for us. And finally, we have complete forgiveness, don't we? Like what is talked about in Colossians 3, accepting one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Because he is God, because he is perfect, he offered us an uncompromised standard for how we're to live our lives. These are just a few areas of how he does that. And truly, because he is God, we need to follow and imitate him. This also means that his promises are trustworthy. 
When he makes a promise, because he is God, he can deliver consistently and without fail. Like the promise of eternal life. John 3 talks about it. That this is why Jesus came and died so that those who would believe could have eternal life. He also tells us that he is going to be with us. We already read Matthew 28. He tells his followers, go make disciples and I am with you wherever you go, always, every time. In John chapter 14, he talks about answered prayers. The only way he can guarantee answers to our prayers is if he has the capability of doing so because he is God. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And then he invites us to abundant, fruitful living as well, doesn't he? In John chapter 15, he talks about that. He says, you need to remain in me because the truth is you can do nothing without me. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this. And what about heaven? Doesn't he promise heaven too? Just like he was talking to his first century followers and trying to prepare them for his own departure. He says, your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare this place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. If Jesus were not God, this promise would be meaningless. And we know that Jesus is no longer here in the sense of being with us in his bodily form. But because he is God, he was able to leave and, and, and go to the Father to leave someone else behind that could be with us. He said he wasn't going to leave us as orphans. And because he is God, God indwells all believers through the Holy Spirit. He talks in John 14 about some things here connected with the Holy Spirit, doesn't he? And we're told that the Holy Spirit is truly a gift from the Father. The Holy Spirit is a comforter of the same kind as Jesus, meaning that because Jesus was God, so the Holy Spirit is God. The Greek word translated another can actually have a couple of different meanings. It can mean another of the same kind or another of a different kind. In this context, it is the Greek word which means another of the same kind. So because of that, the Holy Spirit, who is God, lives inside every believer. He's not just with us or on us, but he's in us. And that is the promise of Scripture. So these are the practical things that I want you to consider and think about as you as you firm up your belief system, as you add some more cement to the structure, as you become more and more convinced of the fact that Jesus is God so that you don't waver in that truth. It's not just an exercise in getting smarter. It's actually thinking about how should all of this that I say that I believe affect the way that I live. And only you can answer that. You know, these characteristics of deity are convicting, I think, especially the idea that uh, Jesus is omniscient, that he knows everything. He knows everything about us, even the things that we think that we have hidden. Those things are openly known to God. And I think that should drive us to repentance and confession and turning from our sin. So who is Jesus? Jesus is God. 
And why does it matter? Well, these practical applications hopefully help us to understand that and will hopefully help us to translate the truth into the language of daily living. Let's bow our heads and just close our eyes for a moment. I want you to consider where you are this morning spiritually. Do you know Jesus? Can you look in your life sometime in the past and see where you truly came to him and by grace through faith in Christ believed in his death, burial, and resurrection to save you from your sins? Maybe you're not even sure what all that means. That's, that's very churchy, isn't it? Well, if you have questions about that, would like to know more about what this means or would even like to know more about how you can know Jesus, you're in a good place. We are here, the pastoral staff, myself and Pastor Charlie and Pastor Stephen are here to speak with you and answer those questions as well as a host of others. So please don't go on without your questions being answered. And maybe you're here today and you're saying, you know what? I want to trust in this Jesus. I want to know him as my Savior and Lord. Would you see us before you leave today? I would invite you to come and speak with me. I'll be in the welcome area. would love to see you there and have that conversation today. Believers, those who have put their trust in Jesus, how should this theology that we believe about Jesus change the way that we're living right now? What did God speak to our hearts about? Maybe it was one of those items as following Jesus as our example. I don't know. Whatever it is, let's take care of that today for our good and for the glory of God. Could we stand together, please, at this time with heads bowed and eyes closed? I invite the worship team back to the platform. Let's close in prayer, and then we'll be dismissed this morning. Father, thank you for your mercy and your love as demonstrated through Jesus. You demonstrated with power your love as Jesus died on the cross for us while we were still dead in our own sins. Thank you for that. Thank you for Jesus being God, not just a man, not just a great teacher, but being the son of the living God, equal to the Father. Thank you for his perfect sacrifice on the cross that we can know for sure that our sins are forgiven and that we have a home in heaven because of the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And all of that because he is God. Thank you for these things. Draw those to yourself who need salvation. And we'll give you the praise. It's in the powerful and strong name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.